titled Your Christmas Story. And all of us bring our past, our stories, into life with us. Every day that we live, we bring all of the previous days with us into that moment. And so uh, what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be thinking about your story. Uh, what, are the, what are the major plots of your life? As you look back over your life, how, how do you see your story working out? And if you were to do a character study of your life, the people that you've known or in who you have been and who you've become, you know, what are those character studies and what are the major themes of your life? And then as we read this familiar Christmas story all over again this year, we're going to read it through a new lens for many of us. We're going to read it in such a way that we're going to be looking to find ourselves in that familiar Christmas story. How does our story intersect with the familiar Christmas story? And as we discover their story, we're going to discover more about ourselves. When we watch a, a movie or we read a book, we identify with the protagonist. The protagonist is the hero of the story. In our minds, we become that person on the screen. Whoever the protagonist is, whoever the hero is, as we watch the movie, this, it's the transfer that takes place, is that we somehow in our minds become the protagonist we see on that screen. If that doesn't happen, then we're not interested in the movie. Do you know what I'm saying? If we can't somehow identify with that person, then we're just not interested because that's what, that's what makes stories interesting. Or when you read that book, can you identify with the protagonist? And, and the reason is if we can't find ourselves in that story, then it doesn't mean anything to us. We feel like a passive, a passive observer watching somebody else's story, but we're like, oh, that doesn't really have anything to do with my life, and, and it doesn't mean anything to us. But we, if we can identify with the protagonist, then we can journey along with that protagonist, that hero, through their journey. And then as we journey with them, we learn something about ourselves. If you think about good movies you've seen or good books you've read, I mean, the really good ones, isn't it true that you just kind of learn something about yourself in that process? Isn't that true? That you just journey along with them. Sometimes you experience catharsis, which is an, an emotional cleansing. When you see life through somebody else's eyes and you're able to, to somehow step outside of yourself and almost through that character's eyes, see your own life. And you learn something about yourself as you journey with that protagonist. And it's a journey of self-discovery. And that's what we're invited to do in this series as well. So think about your favorite movie. What is it for you? Or your favorite book. What is that for you? And have you ever wondered why? Why is that my favorite movie? Why is it my favorite book? Somehow, I'm sure it has something to do with you being able to identify with the protagonist. Somehow that helps you learn something about yourself as you journey along with that person. We have, a, we have two boys, eight and three, almost nine and four now, unbelievable. And our almost four-year-old is discovering Star Wars for the first time. And he doesn't, I see some hands going up in the back. They're like, yes! And, and now we don't let him watch every scene. It's a little scary for him still, but he sees some of the scenes. And the, and the other day he walked up to me and he said, Daddy, and he, he called him Dark Vader, Dark Vader. He said, Dark Vader threw the amper down the hole. Instead of the emperor, he said the amper. Dark Vader threw the amper down the hole. I said, oh, oh yeah, the, the Return of the Jedi. Yeah, that's the end. Dark Vader threw the amper down the hole. And it's just amazing to, to watch a, a, you know, a child experience Star Wars for the first time. It, it, and it's kind of new to me 
as I see it through his eyes. And so um, that's why we're able to identify with what we see or what we watch because we can, we can find ourselves in the story. I love a book called Story by Robert McKee. It's a screenwriting manual. Screenwriting is the process of turning a story into a movie. And he says, um, in my experience, the principle of antagonism is the most important and least understood precept in story design. So the protagonist is the hero. And he says, but conversely, on on the other hand, the principle of antagonism, the the antagonist, antagonist, is one of the most important and overlooked principles in a movie. So you have the protagonist, the hero. And the antagonism is whatever's in their way, whatever obstacle they're facing, whatever hardship they have to endure, what makes their journey difficult for them. As you think about your favorite movie, your favorite story, what is the antagonism that the hero faces? And, and do you identify that with that because somehow you can see your own antagonism, your own obstacles, your own hardship in that movie? And he said, by forces of antagonism, we mean the sum total of all the forces that oppose the character's will and desire. So the protagonist, the hero, becomes the underdog. Somebody who somehow must overcome the forces against them. And then we journey along with that protagonist as they face these forces of antagonism throughout their journey. And then they learn something about themselves and we learn something about ourselves. And so during this Advent series, I want to invite you to find yourself in the Christmas story. And to take it seriously, perhaps in a new way, we're going to talk about some obstacles to taking it seriously today. And maybe you could identify with the protagonists in this story. And you can also perhaps identify with the forces of antagonism that Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus faced. Because maybe you face obstacles and hardship like that as well. So that's where we're headed in this Advent series. And today our protagonist is Jesus' mother. Mary. We're going to read about her in Luke chapter 1. I invite you to read along with me. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. So when 21st century people read the Christmas story, what's the first thing we think of? The virgin birth. When 21st century post-scientific revolution people, like ourselves, read the Christmas story, there is a force of antagonism at work. There's an obstacle, a hardship. 
in that story for many of us, and it prevents us, even if we don't admit it. By the way, please hear me. Even if we don't admit it, maybe you would not admit that this is difficult for you, but I bet it is. I bet it is. When we, when we read about the virgin birth, we read in a time where we're skeptical of the miraculous. And when we read something that is this incredible miracle, amazing miracle, all of a sudden that becomes the force of antagonism in the story. And it's very difficult for some of us, many of us, to learn anything from that story otherwise, to take it seriously, to journey with the protagonist. And so I want to talk a little bit today about um, what miracles mean and how we deal with the virgin birth. And then after we touch on that for a few minutes, then I want to dive into the story and, and, and then learn about Mary's journey and how we can identify with her. So I want to give you the setting of Mary's life. Mary is from Nazareth, which is in the northern part of Palestine called the Galilee. I have a map here to show you. Uh, during, um, during her pregnancy, she travels to Bethlehem, that's in the southern part of Palestine, where she gives birth to the baby Jesus. This is modern-day Israel, of course. And just to give you an idea of the distance, Nazareth is about 90 miles from Bethlehem. So in the next map, you see if Bethlehem is Phoenix, Nazareth would be around uh, the exit from the 17 going to Prescott, about 90 miles. If you've driven that, that's a couple hours drive, Google says if you're walking, it's 32 hours, which is the way that Mary would have made that journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And then I want to show you a picture. This is a nearby town. So Mary lives in Nazareth. And there was a town less than four miles from Nazareth called Sepphoris. And I have a photo of the ruins of Sepphoris. And there's a debate about whether Sepphoris was a major city during the lifetime of Jesus or if it became a major city after his lifetime. If it was during his lifetime, it's possible that Jesus did business there. I mean, we're talking about 3.5 miles away from Nazareth. That's, that's a walkable distance. And perhaps Jesus was familiar with Sepphoris. Mark chapter 6 tells us that Jesus was a carpenter like Joseph or an artisan before he began traveling and teaching. Perhaps he did business in Sepphoris. But regardless, Sepphoris is a powerful contrast to Nazareth. Sepphoris was a wealthy city. It was a Roman city. There are still about 40 beautiful, expensive mosaics uh, on the floors of wealthy homes. I have a, a photo of, a, of one of the mosaics here. There are mosaics even in the public streets. This uh, particular mosaic is called the Mona Lisa of the Galilee. And it's an indication that there was a lot of money in Sepphoris. Sepphoris was a city of wealth. It was multicultural. It had a Roman theater that seated 3,000 people. I think we have a picture of that as well. And so it was a, it was a city uh, with a concentration of wealth. Now, in contrast to Sepphoris was the city of Nazareth. It was a, it was a much different place, and, and Nazareth is where Jesus grew up. Nazareth is where his mother grew up. And I have some uh, video footage here from from Nazareth. It's silent, so I'm just going to talk over it. I took, uh, I took this, this footage from a, a shaky bus uh, when I got to go to Israel in January of 2012, and so you can just kind of see this is what it looks like taking the main road to Nazareth. And uh, at the time of Mary, Nazareth was a town of about 300 people. It's a little village. Now it's a town of about 200,000 people. It's about 70% Muslim now about 30% Christian. Two Israeli Arab children were killed by rockets in 2006 when Israel entered into a conflict with Lebanon. 
the country just to the north of Israel. So it's a place where it's a place where uh, there is con- there's contention and there's violence. This is the Basilica, the Roman Catholic Basilica of the Annunciation from the outside. And the area around it was paved when Pope John Paul II visited there in the year 2000. The church is on top of a hill, and there's a large courtyard around the church building for people to gather. There are beautiful fountains and stac- statues. This is the inside, and tradition tells us that this basilica was built over the cave, the cave that Mary's family lived in when this angel would have visited Mary that we read about in the Christmas story. The basilica has two levels. The top floor is a sanctuary, and the focal point of the lower floor is a small chapel. You can see it down there. From, this is from the second floor looking down. The small chapel with an altar that leads to the cave under that church building. And so this, uh, this church building is built on top of uh, a cave where it's believed that Mary grew up. The next photo we have, oh, there you go, I just want you to see this. This is down underneath the church. There's the, there's the cave. And the next photo we have is of that cave. So Sepphoris was a, a Roman multicultural city uh, where there's a concentration of wealth and a theater and mosaics, even on the public streets. And less than four miles away, Mary grew up in a cave. I have another photo as well here, um, another angle from that cave. And I think there's one more. I think there might be a diagram of, uh, yeah, this is a diagram of that cave where Mary grew up. Perhaps those lower caves were storage compartments for food to keep it cool. And her family, who knows how many children would have been in that family, lived in that cave. So. It was not the virgin birth that was shocking to the original hearers of the Christmas story. That's, that's shocking to us in our time, post-scientific revolution. But that, that isn't what was shocking to them. When I, when I talked about you know, giving this, uh, this series, somebody said to me a few weeks ago, it's going to be interesting what you, what you say about the virgin birth. Because they're, they're, you know, this is a place where we say you can express your faith and your doubts, and a place where we allow people to be honest. And, and so... When you encounter any miracle in the Bible, no matter what it is, the, the point of the miracle is not the miracle itself. In any miracle in the Bible, the point of the miracle is the meaning of the miracle. It's what the miracle means that is important. It's not, there's just not a miracle thrown in there just, just because. Uh, it, it, the miracle is there to communicate something to us. There's, there's a meaning to the miracle. And the virgin birth communicates something very different to us than it did to the original audience. Imagine if a 14-year-old girl, and by the way, this is about how old Mary was probably when she gave birth to Jesus. Because in her culture, girls were betrothed shortly after they got their first period. There was a great concern that they would be virgins when they were married. And so the guys figured, hey, the best way to do that is just let's lock them down. Right as they reach some kind of sexual maturity, or not even, but let's betroth these girls. And she was essentially passed from seen as, being seen as property of her father to now being property of her, her soon-to-be husband. She, she had very little rights in the ancient world. And she's probably 13 or 14 years old. Now imagine if a, a 14-year-old girl in Chandler, here in 2019, became pregnant. And she told her, her parents that she was a virgin. And if that were to happen, they would assume one of two things. 
has taken place in this young woman's life. They would assume that she had a consensual relationship and had become pregnant, or they would assume that she had a non-consensual relationship and had become pregnant. And the same thing was true of her in her time, I and mean, they assumed the same thing. But imagine if, if she continued in that story, and she said, no, I promise, and, and she just kept saying this, and, and they had greater worries about her, and eventually they decided to get her tested, and to, and to test you know, the child, perhaps. I don't know how this would all play out, but, and they discovered that, incredibly, this child does not have a human father, that somehow this young woman has, has reproduced asexually. What if that happened? Would, would the rest of the world and the medical community and all of us, would we have immediately jump to the conclusion, oh, this child is the promised Messiah, the Son of God? Would that immediately follow asexual reproduction in our society? Well, no, it wouldn't. What would happen to this young woman? She would be subjected to tests for the rest of her life, correct? And the child that she would give birth to, trying to determine some scientific cause as to how this happens. So the virgin birth functions differently in our culture than it did in her culture. As a matter of fact, the world that Jesus was born into expected some kind of divine origin if a person was special. So as Jesus grew up and he began teaching and preaching and then after his death and resurrection, his followers proclaimed that no, he's more than just a, he's more than a human. Somehow we have seen God in the flesh. When we interacted with Jesus, somehow it was like seeing the goodness and, and love of God and, and so many good things happened around him that, that we, we just started to think this is not normal. Something else is going on with this person. Something else, there's a greater life coming through his and, and they would expect actually in the Greco-Roman world, the time that Jesus was born into, they would expect that there would be some kind of divine origin story. If, if they would have just said, Jesus is amazing and he does all these incredible things and you should follow him, and well, where did he come from? Well, his parents are Mary and Joseph. They would say, well, that's lame. That's just the Greco-Roman world. They expected something greater. And so the virgin birth communicates that, yes, Jesus is special, but it communicates something else that was even more impactful and even scandalous to the first people who heard this story. They were used to virgin births. When they talked about the virgin birth of Jesus, maybe, maybe the folks would have thought about the birth of Hercules. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, but a lot of us here are new, and maybe you haven't heard this. But in Greek mythology, there was the story of Hercules, that he was the son of the god Zeus and a mortal woman named Alcmene. But uh, the myth says that Zeus tricked Alcmene into having a relationship with him by pretending to be her husband. He turned off the lights and snuck in, pretending to be, that's actually how the story goes, and, and pretended to be her husband. The god fooled her and took advantage of her. A powerful being, a powerful male, took advantage of a woman. Now, in our day and age, we're admitting more and more how frequently this takes place. That's what the, the Me Too movement has taught us. That this is a, a power dynamic in our world that is common. But imagine, as it was in the ancient world, when you heard the word God, or you heard the word church, 
or you heard the word religion, and the first thing that popped into your mind was an image of God that is essentially Harvey Weinstein. That when, when the word God was spoken, you think, oh yeah, capricious beings that trick women into non-consensual relationships with them. And then they have spawn. Yeah, that God, yeah, 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 yeah. Imagine if you heard the word God or church or religion and you thought of an abusive power relationship. That's what they thought of. And then this is also true. Some of you don't have to use much of an imagination, do you? Because perhaps your experience of God, church, religion has been marked by mistreatment. Maybe even abuse. Maybe gossip. Maybe clicks. Maybe rejection. And so in some ways, we can already start to find ourselves in the Christmas story. Because this is what the people thought of when they thought of God. So the, the shocking, hard to believe, scandalous thing that the, the original audience would have been skeptical about when they heard the Christmas story was not the virgin birth, but it's what it says about God. That in the Christmas story, God does not trick Mary. God does not turn off the lights and it's not a sexual relationship. God does not take advantage of her. It's consensual. And the angel appears to Mary as a, as a messenger of God and says that God's power will overshadow you. And yes, this child will be called the Son of God. And, and she says, may it be to me as you've said. I am your, Lord, I am your servant. It's a consensual relationship of dignity and respect. The original audience who heard the Christmas story would have been blown away by that. Shocked that this is not the God Zeus who acts like Harvey Weinstein. That at the center of the universe, there is not a power dynamic where some powerful male being takes advantage of invisible, powerless people. Even though Alcmene was a queen, you know, the gods behave this way on a regular basis in their stories. But no, this God is a, a good, good father who treats humans with respect. Even a 13 or 14-year-old girl who was essentially invisible in her society, powerless. Very few people cared about Mary. She had very a few alternatives. She didn't have many places to turn. And so the Christmas story tells us in the 21st century even though the virgin birth functions differently for us, it tells us that God favors the outsider. God favors the outsider. Now, Mary was poor and she was invisible. That's one way that she was an outsider. Maybe you feel financial anxiety, especially as we go into the holidays. Maybe you feel poor. Maybe you feel like an economic outsider in our culture. You know, the stock market's you know, going gangbusters, but wages have been stagnant for, for 30 years. And maybe you feel that pressure, maybe you feel financial anxiety, and there is a sense of isolation in that, isn't there? If you feel financial stress, if you're not quite sure how you're going to pay the bills and make ends meet, there's a sense of loneliness wrapped up in that. There's a sense of threat uh, to your own life and your own sense of survival when you feel financial anxiety. So maybe the Christmas story for you means God favors the outsider. 
If you're feeling financial anxiety, you're not alone. God favored this poor young woman, and maybe, maybe you're not an outsider at all. Maybe at the center of the universe, there's a divine being that looks favorably upon you. And you're not cast aside. You're not alone in this world. Perhaps God is with you more than you ever realized. Now, maybe you're doing fine financially, and, and, and maybe Christmas to you is a, is a challenge. I have a friend who's an investment banker, and he advises wealthy people on how to become more wealthy. And he uh, told me recently, he said, you know, sometimes I question um, my purpose and my calling. And, and he said, you know, it's my job to help people build wealth. And, but at the same time, he said, I've decided, I've made a decision that when people ask me for, my, for, for financial advice, sometimes, there it goes again, sometimes I'm going to tell them, you know what? I'm going to be honest with you. I could tell you to invest it here. But one of the lessons I've learned in my life is the power of giving. And even though it's not going to make me commission, even though it's not going to come into our accounts, he says, there are just times when I encourage people to give. That's a guy who is listening to the meaning of Christmas. Even it affects him personally. But maybe for you, you're doing great. And maybe the challenge for you is the thought that God somehow favors the poor. God favors the insider. Maybe you have wealth. Maybe you have power. And what does it mean for your life that God favors people who don't? Of course God's in your favor. Of course God's in your corner and favors you, of course. But the Christmas story tells us that God would lean toward those who were invisible and powerless in our society. And what does that say to you? about the use of your wealth and how you can use your power to make this world better for people who have less. The, the Christmas story also communicates the value of children. Children were outsiders in the ancient world, and today, often still are. 25% of American children are born into poverty. In the land of opportunity, where, where we believe in the American dream, 25% of American children are born into poverty every single year. Children had even less rights in the ancient world, Mary was practically a child herself. And yet God came to her and dignified her and honored her and blessed her. We dedicated little Emma today. And as we think about what the Christmas story communicates about God favoring the outsider and children, we're challenged as people who want to follow Jesus and as conscientious people, as thinking, compassionate people. What kind of world is little Emma going to grow up in? What kind of America is she going to experience over the next 10 or 15 years? I know that many of us here, you, you're informed, you stay up with the news, and you're thinking people. And isn't it true here, as, as we approach the end of 2019 and the start of 2020, isn't it true that we have some decisions to make as a people? Isn't that true? About what kind of country, what kind of world little Emma is going to grow up in, and the rest of the kids here in Well Kids that we clap for as they walked out the door. We have some decisions to make, don't we? And we're faced with this realization that if we don't figure some things out in our society, that these little kids are going to grow up in a world that's much different than the one we grew up in. They're going to grow up in a world where there's this, this fight between authoritarianism and freedom like perhaps we've never seen. I think about my own boys, two little boys, eight and three, and I don't want to think about them having to grow up in a country where they're constantly have, being pulled between fascism and communism. And it just seems like that's the direction 
that we're headed in. Where this, this, there's this extreme division. We're going to have to figure some things out if we're going to favor children in the next generation. You know, like many of you, I had Thanksgiving um, uh, with, uh, hopefully, with people you love this week. And I was sitting with my wife and, and my boys, and, and uh, right before Thanksgiving dinner, I uh, pulled the turkey out too early. And so I messed up the dinner, and then our little guy, he loves racing little Hot Wheels cars or Matchbox cars, you know what I'm talking about, those little metal cars. And we have a, a hard, hardwood, what's well, not real hardwood, like linoleum hardwood floor, vinyl floor. And he loves racing them across the floor, and he, and he slams these cars into each other. So the soundtrack of my life is the sound of Hot Wheels banging into each other. And then like spinning off into the baseboard. And I'm, oh, Bubby, Bubby, not so hard. Take it easy in your toys. And, and so I was kind of agitated just hearing that clank, clank, clank. And, and, the, and the food, you know, I, I messed the food up. And we sat down for Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, I was looking at my wife and, and our two boys. And um, just kind of, you know, kicking myself for messing up dinner. And, and just kind of, you know, coming down from that experience. And I looked around in the frustration of that. And I thought, you know what? Uh, my two boys are healthy, and so is my wife, and uh, we're not really facing any major hardship right now, and uh, we have opportunities, and we have a great church family, and started thinking about all the things that were going well, and we went around the table, and we talked about, what are you thankful for? And we all share what we're thankful for, and it just occurred to me, these are the good old days. You know what I'm saying? When we get, you know, f- further on into life and we tend to look back and, and we, we reminisce about days gone by when they were so great, we all know we're, we're going to do that. I mean, that's, that's what we do as we get older. And you start to, to think about the past more and more and more. And, and I thought, you know, looking around the table after I messed up Thanksgiving dinner and cars clanking, and I said, you know what? These are the good old days. It's not going to get any better than this for old Ryan. Uh, it occurred to me. I thought, you know, as I get older, I'm, this is the time I'm going to look back on. And if I can't enjoy this, then what do I have? If I can't choose to live in the moment and find enjoyment in this, then what do I have and value the people around me, including my kids? Right. What, what else do I have? Rob Bell gave a tour recently, came around and gave a tour called um, Introduction to Joy. Maybe some of you were there, and the point of his tour was, it was like a stand-up comedy routine for like an hour and a half, and then he, he kind of brought it down to reality, and his, his message was basically, we're all going to die, so you might as well enjoy now. Like, that's where, we're, that's where we're headed. He's in the ancient world, they were a lot more acquainted with death. Life didn't last as long, and, and disease took us a lot sooner in the ancient world, and he said, there was a view that, that we could recover, that if we're all going to go at some point, so just enjoy life now. You know, and, and don't wait for some other time, but value the people around you now. You know, have, choose to experience joy now. And that's part of what the Christmas story communicates to us. And then lastly, the Christmas story says that God favors the religious outsider. Nazareth was a, a backwater town. Definitely on the other side of the tracks. It was in the northern part of Palestine. Jerusalem is close to Bethlehem in the southern part. And yes, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but that's not where Mary was from. That's not where the angel announced the birth of Jesus to Mary. It was in a, a small, poor village 
far away from the religious center of the time. And the Christmas story says to us that God favors the religious outsider. And I would imagine if we were going to characterize ourselves here in this congregation, many of us, if we were talking about our, our spiritual lives, would some, say something like, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a nonconformist religious outsider. You think I'm right about that? That we would kind of feel like, you know, I don't necessarily fit in what a lot of people think of as Christianity in America or the church experience that a lot of people think of in America. I ask too many questions. I, I cause too much trouble. I don't just toe the party line. I don't always agree with the pastor. I don't always behave in Bible studies, you know. Maybe you would identify as a religious outsider, if that's true. Perhaps the Christmas story communicates to you that God values the religious outsider, somebody who's far away from the temple, somebody who's far away from the religious center of the day. I read an interview with Bono about his faith, and, he, and Bono said, religion can become the enemy of God. You realize that, don't you? I think people here at the well realize that religion can actually become the enemy of God. And we see that so often, and the well exists not to just play, you know, to be a part of the, the common religious landscape of the United States, but we exist to live in this tension. Well, we want to follow God, we want to follow Jesus, we, we, we take the Bible seriously, we think about our faith, and at the same time we realize that religion can become the enemy of God. And that somehow we hold uh, the miraculous loosely. Sometime, somehow we hold dogma loosely. And we believe, as, as Colby said, that faith could be better translated as trust. That we don't just have this creedal statement that we hang our hat on and, and we have 100% absolute certainty about things that we don't really have a way of being certain about. And, and we force that onto other people. And we cause them to be hypocrites or pretenders. But instead, we just allow people to think and not pretend and come as they are. And we say in our values, you can express both your faith and your doubts so that you can grow to become your best self. And you can partner with God to make a difference with your life. You can identify with the Christmas story. You don't have to drink the Kool-Aid to find yourself in the Christmas story or to find yourself in a church. You don't have to pretend to believe things you don't believe. Now we're all on a journey and we all want to be open and thinking people. And for, for many, you know, we, we read a story like the Christmas story and skepticism just kind of builds a wall and we never get past that and we can't take it seriously and we can't identify with the story. But perhaps if God favors the outsider and that's the major theme, that's the major plot of Mary's life, then perhaps we can find ourselves in that story. And you can become part of a church. You can be part of the well. And you can still ask questions. And you can realize because God favors the religious outsider. So I guess, hey, maybe that's good news for me. And, and I can hold these ideas in tension. And finally, maybe the Christmas story communicates to you as a religious outsider that you don't have to give in to cynicism. 
You know, when you say the word God and you think of Harvey Weinstein, well, it's, it's easy to become cynical about religion and spirituality. And if your experience of church and religion has been one of abuse, one of mistreatment, well, it's easy to become cynical. I, I, I can't blame you for that. And if your experience has been that you felt invisible or you felt like the outsider and, and folks treated you that way, well, then it's easy to become cynical. But perhaps the, the message of the Christmas story to us is that there's something better than cynicism. If God is the opposite of the abusive gods, if God is good, if God honors your dignity, if the God who created you with a brain is okay with you using it, and God treats you with respect, and God values the powerless and children, and God values the outsider, well, then perhaps we don't have to give in to cynicism. Cynicism means that I'm closed. I've been wounded or I've been pushed away or I've been hurt so many times that I've just decided to be closed. And the, the thing about cynicism is it can masquerade as wisdom. You can think that you've just learned a lot of lessons in life and you've got the scars to prove it. And, and cynicism can almost be like a badge of honor where cynicism kind of mimics wisdom. But in fact, cynicism is not wisdom. It's actually the opposite of wisdom. Stephen Colbert said in an interview a few years ago, cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it is the farthest thing from it because cynics don't learn anything. Because cynicism is self-imposed blindness, a rejection of the world because we are afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. Cynicism means I've already learned everything there is to know. And now I know I can be closed off towards that. I can be closed off towards religion and spirituality. I can be closed off towards God, whatever that, you know, the divine, whatever it means in, in your experience. I can be closed off towards that because I've been hurt by it in the past. And perhaps you can identify with Mary's journey. But no, 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 no. Maybe it doesn't have to be like that. Maybe reality is something different from that. And I can be open to something new. I can rethink. I can reconstruct. I can rebuild. I can reclaim some things. And I can be open to what God is doing in my life and, and in our world. So how do you find yourself in Mary's story? Perhaps you feel financial anxiety. Perhaps you feel poor. And what does it mean to you that God values poor. You're not alone. Perhaps you feel invisible. Perhaps you've been mistreated. Perhaps you've been ignored. Perhaps your voice has been uh, unheard. Perhaps you've been unseen. What does it mean that God values the invisible like a 13, 14 year old girl in the ancient Middle East? And God values you. Maybe you felt like an outsider in the religion, uh, in the church world, and religion and spirituality. What does it mean to you? How do you identify with Mary? That No, actually, if, if God chooses to enter into the human experience, God goes far away from the church. You can't get much farther north than Nazareth, actually, away from Jerusalem. God's like, no, I'm, I'm getting as far away from the temple as possible. If that's who God really is, then what does that say to you as a religious outsider? Perhaps 
You're not an outsider at all. Perhaps ironically, the fact that God values the outsider and you're an outsider actually means you're an insider and it gets all confusing that the outsiders become the insiders but there's this twist ending in the Christmas story and that seems to be what the story is going for here. How do you identify with Mary in this Christmas story? I invite you to pray with me in a moment. We're going to take communion together.